Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Josh Larson. Josh is the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting, as well as an editor and film critic at Think Christian, an online faith and culture magazine. He's also the author of a great new book entitled Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. He lives with his wife and two daughters in the Chicago area, and we had a really interesting conversation. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. I give you Josh Larson. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, so I'm someone that I think people think I'm I'm better at film criticism than I am, but I think the most unwatched film of all times is Zorro the Gay Blade. Yes. Zorro the Gay Blade. Yes, no. Have you seen it? I have not. Give me, right, give me your case for Zorro the Gay Blade. Well, it's the, uh, I can't make a good case for it, but it's actually, well, it's <laughs> it's a Mel Brooks, before, like in, it, it's a, right about 1980, George Hamilton plays Zorro. He basically is a playboy who inherits the costume from his father and wears it to a costume ball to pick up chicks. He actually lives into the role, starts actually being, wait, I want to fight for the oppressed, but then jumps off a ledge, breaks his foot. And then the oppression of the poor gets worse. And then his twin brother shows up, who's gay. Bunny Wigglesworth. Like, and, so it, and he becomes the alternative Zorro. And he's, and he's like, but this costume is so drab. And he uses a whip rather than a sword. And he says to people, there's no sin in dressing poor, only dressing poorly. And then at one point, um, the love interest is to the gay guy. It's like, I'm seeing two sides of the same man. You're much more vulnerable. You're much, so it's, it's amazing. You know, I've already gotten two impressions out of this conversation. So I am way ahead of the game. That was fantastic. I might have seen, now that I realized the year it came out, just looked it up here, 1981. I might have seen this as a kid, you know, just in that rush. Yeah, my of- Aunt Gail of Blessed Memory, like, bought the video for me and the DVD. Like, she wow. took me to it in the 80s. She's a very progressive woman, uh, again, of Blessed Memory. But also, George Hamilton's servant is mute. So he's like, a letter, Paco, read it to me. And he's like, are you yelling at me, Paco? <laughs> so the, the, his servant talks all in sign language. <laughs> Sounds great. I'm going to have to revisit it. Uh, I will recommend to you 1920s The Mark of Zorro, a little little more serious. Have you seen that one? I have, and I have also seen Tyrone Power as Zorro. In the f- yeah. That's my favorite Zorro. Antonio Banderas, not bad. Oh, okay. Antonio Banderas also, yeah, I have many favorite Zoros. <laughs> Maybe you just can't go wrong with Zorro. Josh, you've written a great book. Movies are prayers, how films voice our deepest longings. What was the first movie you saw in the theater that you remember? Boy, I'm going to say it is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Great film. But I have more of a distinct memory of the poster outside the movie theater and driving to see it with my dad. We were on vacation in Michigan, uh, you know, week-long traditional family cottage vacation, and we went to the nearest theater, which was probably an hour away, maybe a little more. And I just remember looking at that poster outside. I don't know if we actually saw it that day. And I'm sure I saw, you know, movies earlier than that in theaters. 
But that's the one that comes to mind. And that was the poster with the stone rolling, and he's running, right? Like it's it, it like he's kind oh, of behind with him. the whip, yeah, yeah. behind him, yeah, yeah. Do you think Harrison Ford is a good actor? I do. I think he's a movie star first. You know, there there are actors and there are movie stars, and I think he's much more of a star. And that's not to say he's less talented. It's just kind of the quality of his screen presence. So he brings those same qualities to Han Solo as he does to Indiana Jones. But yeah, he's done, you know, other more interesting stuff. If you ever seen What Lies Beneath, this Robert Zemeckis Hitchcock ripoff, really, but I think it's great. Um, you've got Harrison Ford doing some really sort of sleazy work there. That's pretty good. Alec Baldwin says that the people that are the great actors are usually not the movie stars, with the exception, he says, of Cruise and Hanks, the two Toms. He says that Tom Cruise, he would work with Tom Cruise on any film just because, like, he said, Tom, why do you work so hard? He's like, I got to give them their money's worth. The people... <laughs> And the producers. You feel that in his performances too, right? The guy's yeah. trying so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a guy that you, you're, you, this is interesting because you've written a great book. And I would say that for anybody that wants to do like a um, kind of Lenten study or something, or a study where you're trying to get together a group of people, or an alpha course, we're trying to get together spiritual people that want to think about spirituality and also people that are uninitiated in traditional religion and its practices. This is the book to do, right? I hope so. Yeah. I, that's great to hear you describe it that way. That's definitely one of the hopes. It is the least autobiographical book. And as I read it, I was like, what the hell is this guy's story? Like you really don't talk about yourself much. <laughs> Tell me about you. I, that is hard for me to do. And my, who would task, play you in the movie? Oh my gosh. I, I have no, I've never thought about that. I have no idea for that. I, I, this is why. All right, let's go, let's go dramatic or comedic actor. Would it be who, like, who do you, who do you like when you, when you see yourself on the movie, I could have been in that part. Who do you see yourself as in films? I'm going to, I'm going to say Harrison Ford, the same answer I would have given you uh, when I was eight. Okay. That's, airplane that's one. The last time I thought of who would play me in a movie and it was Harrison Ford. Uh, yeah, the autobiographical stuff doesn't come naturally to me. My background is as, you know, a newspaper journalist. So you don't write about yourself. You you get the facts and you tell the story. And the film criticism I've always gravitated towards is the stuff that doesn't directly put the critic into the review. Although someone like Roger Ebert, you get to know him very well. Yeah, yeah. But, but he didn't write about his daily life, you know? So it was hard for me. I kept... I was encouraged by my editor, Helen Lee at University Press, to make it more personal because I do understand that people like that. They want to get to know the author better. And especially, I think, in this day and age, that's something that's more emphasized. So she kept pushing me to do that. And uh, maybe I didn't do it enough. If, if you feel like you have no idea who I am, I don't know. Helen, this interview is answered a prayer. So when did you start writing for newspapers? That would have been in college for the local small town weekly that was, you know, just outside of campus. And I made it. And you were in a religious college. I mean, that's right. Yeah. So you gravitated away from the campus newspaper and into the secular kind of yeah. town newspaper. Well, I was, you know, I edited the, the school newspaper, the college paper, but then 
I've moved pretty quickly to secular media because my... Was there a dramatic movie moment where you're like, you people can do nothing for me anymore? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to the small town paper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That would have been fun, but no, not at all. I've always kind of kept a foot in both worlds. But in terms of pursuing, you know, being a film critic is what I always wanted to be. So early on, my experiences in trying to do that with Christian media at the time, and we're talking like mid 90s here, wasn't very po- it just it didn't line up with how I saw film as a Christian, uh, with what people wanted at that time. So I thought, okay, that you know, that I'll I'll go do this for mainstream media where it feels like a more natural fit, and that's where I remained for a number of years until becoming Think Christian editor in 2011. And you're helping people think as Christians. Yeah, the idea is, you know, to bring together the culture around us with what we believe, what we uh, what we say and think about on Sundays with what takes up the rest of our lives, whether that's, you know, a scientific breakthrough that was announced in the news that week or politics or art, of course, obviously, uh, film and other things. So we do kind of cover all of that and say, hey, this is what you've been reading about this week. Let's think about it together um, through the lens of what we say we'll believe. And your forward was written by Matt zeller Sites, who I've never heard of, but I'm guessing he's not a Christian and he's a respected critic of film. I think, uh, I think you've nailed it there. Right. Yeah, I was so fortunate to get Matt, who, you know, I, I connect with. Fascinating guy, great critic. Um, he has a couple of books out on Wes Anderson, one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, these are just wonderful interview books that he puts out. And he's been, Matt has been very interested in film criticism done by Christians. And again, not necessarily the kind that I experienced back in college where it was sort of fearful and counting the swear words and all that stuff, but critics who are Christians and are trying to engage with film as an art form first. So he was supportive of the project very early on, and I got lucky. He was willing to do the foreword, too. Yeah, and can I just read this part of the foreword? Because I found it very moving when I read the book. Um, He says, whenever I speak to groups about movies or criticism, I'm invariably asked which critics I think people should be reading. I suggest a few names, often people who write for major publications or online journals of note. But then I tell them that if they're interested in form as well as content and in the relationship between the two, that is, if they're looking for actual criticism as opposed to reviews, but written in language that can be understood by somebody who didn't go to film school, then they should be reading critics who write for a religious or, or write for a religious or spiritual audience. And you are par exemplar of the... Uh, of 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 the critics he recommends that's what i'm trying to do and it's it's something that you know didn't come naturally to me when i first thought about okay i'm going to start writing explicitly christian film criticism when i joined think christian in 2011 i kind of fumbled around a little bit because i was still coming out of that tradition where well what you need to worry about is the movie's message so you define the message and then you say whether that's good or bad according to what you believe as a christian And it really wasn't until I started to do, ironically, what I'd been doing in my mainstream film criticism is really focus on the form first, that it opened another avenue for engaging movies as a Christian. I would take something that was in the text, something that the filmmakers had made aesthetic choices over and thought, okay, what does, how does this speak to me as a Christian? How does it maybe mirror the gospel or how does it maybe challenge the gospel in a way that we might be able to offer a loving response? And it kept it closer to the text of the film itself. It allowed the film to speak first. 
And I've still been working my way about how to do that sort of writing. I, I think the book is probably my best shot yet, but I don't think uh, it's something that still doesn't come easy to me. So, uh, you know, I'm still working that out is to try to bring that theological reflection in without hijacking the movie that I'm talking about. Do, do you think actually there's a turn you think about in, in Christian history, there's a movement called Gnosticism that like is never comfortable with materialism, that with the material nature, the embodied nature of um, the way created order is. Do you think some of um, what the forward points to is that actually our culture is getting so Gnostic with disembodied social media stuff that actually there's some remnant of the incarnation left in Christian circles where, well, Jesus, he was at least a human being. That actually Christians that are thoughtful and orthodox actually become the anti-Gnostic people like they were yeah. of old. No, that, I like that. I think there's definitely some resonance there that, that probably speaks to people who are feeling that way, the way you described, for sure. And you're a Reformed guy, a Kuyperian of sorts. Uh, that's been the tradition I grew up in, and I've come to appreciate more and more the older I get and the more of this work I try to do. My friend Dave Fitch, he's a neo-anabaptist, uh, and you guys would be in the 16th century opposed in the sense of the Anabaptists were the people like, hey, the way to preserve Christianity in the midst of a fallen medieval Catholic church is to go be a light on a hill, uh, you know, and yet, like, another tradition says, no, we got to pick up on the salt and sort of get in there and preserve the goodness of creation, like art and politics and culture, and these things are important. So did you think some of that saltness, saltiness of, of the tradition you're reared in is why your career has taken the path it, it's unfolded on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's there's different ways to go about that too. Like, you know, some people would say, yeah, you get in there to to perfect it or to redeem it on your own by your own work. Um, and I, I wouldn't describe my experience that way. I think it's more along the lines of what you were talking about, that uh, creation is good. God is sovereign over all. Um, this idea of common grace that people who may not even claim to believe in him are still blessed by God with creative gifts. And it's okay to celebrate that. You know, it's, it's okay to celebrate the work they've done and to look for the, the good in the work they've done. And it's, it's sometimes going to be right alongside, you know, the bad, whatever that means to someone. So this is not a practice that, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you can throw out discernment uh, at all, but uh, that's, yeah, that's definitely been the the way I was raised and, you know, taught to sort of approach culture. And it always made sense to me. And so it's the way I've continued to do it. What What's the movie that you've not seen that you're embarrassed to admit you haven't seen? Uh, so a thing I do on the side is uh, co-host the Film Spotting podcast, and we just recorded last night uh, to tie in with the book's release, our top five religious experiences at the movies. And Adam Kempinar, my co-host, he founded the show back in 2005. His list had on it uh, Carl Dreyer's Ordette which is one that's, you know, considered these one of these masterpieces of world cinema that I have never seen. He's brought it up, I think, two or three times now on the show, and each time I'm embarrassed. Uh, so, so that's high up on the list right now. Do you ever think you'll just read, like, a summary on Wikipedia and be like, oh, I just saw her dead, and here's the thing. <laughs> no, no. 
Too much integrity. Been, I like never that. Never been tempted to do that. I like that. No temptation. <laughs> What's your biggest temptation that you struggle with daily? Like, is it, it, what is it? It's balance. I mean, you know, that's not a unique answer, but uh, because I do have a variety of professional things I'm juggling and a busy family, it's just that balance that so many people, I think, really struggle with these days. And, you know, realizing too late that you made the wrong choice here or there in how to uh, allot your time. Does your Do you and your wife have the same film, like, tastes, or is that a source of tension? I mean, do, like, what does she like to she's, watch, and what do you like to watch? Yeah, she's. I wouldn't say we have the exact same taste, but she's great about being willing to explore, because I'm watching all sorts of different stuff, and we know by now what are the things she's not interested in. So, you know, something like horror, you know, particularly graphic horror or other things, but yeah, she's more than willing to, if I say I've got to sit down and watch, you know, this 1983 Iranian film uh, for the show, she's more than willing to give it a shot. With it's me. for the show, babe. It's for the show. It's, it's, yeah. See, there, see, that's the, the phrase I'm using that will get me into trouble sometimes is, yeah, she's, she'd be willing to do it, but maybe she would have rather watched Master of None with me and just chilled out for a half hour. And that's the choice I should have made. So. What is Master of None? I don't know that. Oh, the Aziz Ansari Netflix. Ah, uh, oh, my yeah, wife is. Yeah. yeah, my wife is. That it's good uh, stuff. Yeah, I gotta get better. I gotta. I gotta check into that. Do you think that Netflix? You know, video killed the radio star. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever worry that like that the Netflix serial drama combined with the capacity for home theater? I mean, like. The TV's most middle-class people can afford, although, I mean, the middle class is eroding, but while we still have a middle class, do you ever worry that, like, that will kill film? Because it's really tough to go to the movies. Like, and that's a powerful experience when you go. You're eating the popcorn. You're experiencing them collectively. And it's one of the things we have, you know, in a tribalized culture, that's one of our few common meeting spaces that's not partisan. You know, like we just go to the movies. Do you worry that that's going to die? I do. I think it's a real threat, but it's balanced by this reality that maybe not Netflix so much because their archive of older films is fairly poor, but there are other streaming services where you have instant access to such a huge variety of films that before, like when I was younger, you'd have to go to the local library maybe, or here in Chicago, we had this really small video house facets multimedia. You could get an obscure foreign film DVD there or VHS. Now that's all at our fingertips, which is, I mean, take for example, something like this new Sofia Coppola movie that's coming out, The Beguiled. It's actually a remake of a 1971, very weird Clint Eastwood picture. I just dialed that up on Amazon and found, you know, this movie that up until the Coppola remake was announced, I'd never heard of and could catch it in my house. So yeah, I'd rather and not see to mention the theater. Pirate Bay Arvati <laughs> for the unscrupulous among us. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge cornucopia of titles that are instantly available. There is something cool about that. So, do you ever like do events in movie in real life movie theaters like talks or yeah, we'll do that on occasion. And do you, do you find, do people like that come to that, what's the crowd like? I mean, because I can't imagine, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about movie theaters. But the weird thing, if you're an introvert, it's great, right? Because you just go and sure. you have this collective experience and no one expects anything relational to anybody else. If you're an extrovert, that's what's frustrating. You kind of, oh gosh, we had this shared experience. We can't talk about it. 
what what kind of people show up if if you and your co-host are doing some kind of film discussion at a public movie theater? Yeah, you get all kinds, and for the most part, you get really good observations and discussions. That's what we've found doing the show is that like at least like the listeners to film spotting, they're so smart and they make observations that went right past us. And when you get folks like that show up, it's a great discussion. But you also get the people who are there because they know it's a venue that will allow them to speak and say whatever they want. Um, But I had a really good experience at the Conference of World Affairs, which the uh, University of Colorado Boulder does each year. They have had this longstanding tradition, speaking of Ebert, where he used to screen a film once during this week-long conference, and then he would screen it again over the course of four days and you could anyone in the audience could raise their hand and say stop and then make an observation about something hmm. on the screen. So they've been rotating since his death different critics each year. And just this past April, I had a chance to lead it and we did Wes Anderson's Rushmore. And I was warned by people, you know, you've got some attendees who have been doing this for decades. They come and they hold the court and you're going to have to wrestle it away from them. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know if those people didn't come this year, but I really lucked out in that. It was a good conversation, mostly really trenchant observations. And yeah, I ended up learning things about Rushmore myself, even though I've seen it, you know, a dozen times or more. Can I confess something to you? Because you talk about part of the importance of prayer language is confession. Can I confess okay. something to you? Let's do it. I've never seen Rushmore. You should see Rushmore. Have you seen much of Anderson? Yeah. Anderson? And you know, I mean, the most meaningful um, Anderson movie I've seen was... Um, well, I mean, the Royal Tenenbaums, but uh, I mean, that to me is is the quintessential kind of uh, just film. I mean, but it's it's a Moonrise. Um, oh, yeah. Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. Moonrise Kingdom. I my wife uh, wanted to watch that with me. And I, I found that to be one of the most moving films I've seen in a really long time. Yeah, uh, I believe that. Uh, it, it, his movies, you know, what I love about him is that that moving element sneaks up on you. At least for me, you know, you don't see it coming. It doesn't happen in a way that you've expected or seen in other films. And that for me, that makes it all the more powerful. There was a YouTube video that was like the X-Men done by Wes Anderson. And they're like, <laughs> I saying, hey, and they, they're all like, but I think that's actually what Legion tried to do. That serial drama, right? They were like, all right, what if we did the X-Men? With a Wes Anderson vibe, a little dark. And I don't think it succeeded. Really? No, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it was awful. So you actually lay out in the book a way to think about prayer. And you you say that, you know, basically the Christian story goes like something like creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. And you quote Walter Brueggemann's book on the Psalms. And he, he thinks of the Psalms as like, there's three kinds of Psalms, right? Like, orientation. Oh my God, the world is great. I'm planted by the river, you know, by the word of God. Disorientation. Oh my God, there is no God. I just want to bash my enemy's babies on the rocks. And reorientation, something like Psalm 40, you know, like I waited patiently for in time to hear my cry. Do you think like if a film doesn't do those three moves, it probably won't move anybody? Oh, I don't know. That's asking a lot of a single film. I mean, especially when you consider a lot of the movies I talk about in the book, I'm not describing them in their totality as a form of prayer. It's often a single scene that I'll focus on. Or a certain but I couldn't character. find a film you talked about that you couldn't look at from all you those could lenses. Map, you could yeah, you could map on. it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I do, speaking of Rushmore, I, that's what I do the last chapter on and trace that trajectory 
from creation to restoration in one film. But I got to say, it was hard to to locate that film that I felt was able to do that. Um, and, and maybe that's a reticence to not want to, again, force this upon the movies, force a framework upon them, um, but more see what they offer and then say, oh, that's that's a that's confession right there or that's lament or, or that's, you know, a prayer of obedience right there. So I guess it's a process, different process, maybe. Do you think as a critic, part of what you your prayer or offering to the world is like, I feel like we're always trying to figure out the pull between objectivity and subjectivity. Like how much is just, hmm. you know, you like the film and that's your thing. But also, you don't want to be caught in your truth alone. And you know, A.O. Scott says this is the, the 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 purpose of the critic, right? That you you try to help us discover beauty and the true, the good, and the beautiful. And, and the critic often gets maligned, but but actually, what the critic is really trying to do, right, is help us on our collective discovery of what really is true and good and beautiful. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and it's something that I've had to come to recognize and maybe embrace because when you're young, you do think of critics as being snarky or the takedowns are more appealing, and especially if you have a sarcastic bent to your personality, that's part of what appeals to you about it, and I probably indulged in that a fair amount when I was younger. Um but the older I've gotten and the more I've joined critical communities and you realize you're just one voice in a larger conversation, I think this is, you know, you talk about Netflix blowing things up. I think this is what the democratization of film criticism in general, it's been a good thing on the web where everyone has an outlet now. So no one's that authoritative critic, really. Uh, even A.O. Scott has to fight for space among all these other people. So you do realize as you do this more and more that you're just one voice in a conversation and the goal should be to celebrate the good together. And the reason you need all those voices is because you're right. Um, I, I am one perspective. I've come from one tradition, one life experience. And it's good to hear from people who have had vastly different experiences and see what their take is on, like, you know, Wonder Woman. What was the, th the judgment you made on a film that, you thought was so right when you made it and turned out to be so wrong. And, well, it, it, and also, was there a judgment that like initially you weren't real confident about and then was validated or vindicated? Hmm. Um, can, I can tell you one that I'm wrestling with right now is um, Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, because I know Carpenter is this beloved auteur, you know, genre auteur, works in very specific popular genres, but still loved by critics. And I saw Halloween for the first time, I don't know, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, and really completely wrote it off. And every time that comes up, I just get lambasted by mostly fellow critics, but lovers of horror films too. So I still, I, maybe I'm a little fearful about revisiting it and having to admit that I'm wrong, but I should It ain't no Friday the 13th. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's funny how similar those two are. You, you joke, but... Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of similarities. Who's the there. villain in Halloween? It's, um, ah, uh, shoot. It's, Michael uh, Myers. Michael Myers, right? Yeah, yeah. He's not a good villain. I mean, Freddy Krueger's a great villain. Jason's a great See, villain. See, you're talking my language. I think Nightmare on uh, Elm Street is a masterpiece. So yeah, I do. I, I, I completely concur. I think it's an amazing horror 
Like it, and Robert Englund is an actor. When you see him as an actor, it, he was Willie in the V series. He was the he was the alien that went that's out. Right. He, it's so <laughs> ironic and beautiful that yeah, like I think that that's the thing. Like there's no backstory behind Michael Myers that's compelling. I can't get into Michael mm. Myers as a villain. But see, some people say that is that is what makes him scarier is there's no explanation. And I, you know, I kind of agree with that, to be honest with you, when you think about Heath Ledger's Joker in the dark Knight, what I love about that character is once he starts telling his sob story about his childhood, you realize he's just joking, but that's a not, you're that's a nihilistic explanation that you can work with or like, or even the zombies in the walking dead. There's no explanation for that, but it's Michael Myers is, he's thin. He's He's thin. He's He's just thin. He's well, thin. look at me trying to defend a movie. I okay, so you're notoriously um, don't like. So, so there you go. You're um, failing. I crown you with success. Um, yes. So you, you you come from a tradition that is not known for um, uh, you know tr- traditions do certain things well. Nobody ever says the the, the Calvinists are the best prayers, uh, mm-hmm. and your whole book is framed around. Movies as prayers of confession, movies as prayers of obedience, as prayers for reconciliation. Hope you, that you see prayer as this like enacted yearning of the human heart, and you're like, hey, even if you're secular, let's be honest. If you're an a religious person, you're praying, and that's what movies tapping into. What is your prayer life like? Did you? Is this a thing you wrote because hey? Prayer is very important to me, or is this like I'd like to be a better prayer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, maybe it is because of the tradition, but this was very much a learning process for me and an act of uh, spiritual formation almost. Some of these prayers I was more familiar with, you know, confession, yearning, as you were just talking about, I think is universal. We're, we all have that. Lament is something that was very familiar to me. Um, but yeah, when it came to really thinking about what does it mean to offer a prayer of obedience? Uh, what does it mean to offer? What does meditative prayer even look like? Because that's certainly not something in my very staid, reserved tradition we ever participated in. So this was very much an opportunity for me to learn more about prayer and incorporate that into my my own life and it's a challenge you know and now i feel like this uh, this sort of burden to okay you better take what you've learned here and really put it into practice do you pray daily yeah i do but what does that look like i mean it, is it structured or is it kind of like jesus praying on the run I mean, jesus prayed on the run a lot it takes all different shapes depending on the day i mean if it's we have the family devotion time at dinner if we're all together where we do that. So there's your structure, right? The mornings where I'm not rushed here, here's where how you can get a sense of my discipline. The mornings I'm not rushed, I will have a devotional that incorporates structured prayer. Um, and then there is, well, I mentioned this in the book, the prayers at night since I was a kid, I always tried to pray before I fell asleep. And that's a discipline that, man, hmm. in middle age, when you're <laughs> you're barely awake, when you're getting into bed, because the day's been so busy, uh, that has fallen by the wayside. I still try to do that. But for me, prayer has almost always been also something that when I express that yearning is maybe a, too big of a word for what you feel every day, but or or that lament, like I've always felt it's going to God, even if it's just like a shaking my head while I'm driving. Uh, 
down the street and something on the radio, a bad piece of international news comes. You know, it, I felt like that sort of little bit of lament that leaks out is going right to God. So I guess that's why it doesn't seem like a stretch for me to think that, you know, non-believers are praying too, because God's hearing those expressions. And when movies offer similar expressions, God hears that too, and at least is looking down and, and listening to what his beloved are sharing. I remember like in the late 80s, early 90s, Mother Teresa, I guess in the late 80s, was interviewed by Tom Brady, you know, one of the big, when news anchors meant something, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. and they said, when you pray, what do you uh, say? And she said, nothing. Well, what does God say? She said, nothing. He listens. Mm. Is that something of it? Like, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 is it the mystery of... For stopping sure. talking or, or hearing and actually listening. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the frustrating thing is that there are times where you don't feel that listening, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one to expect the bolt of lightning answer. So I don't go around disappointed if I don't get that, but I do have stronger senses of listening at some times than I do at others. Hmm. So can I ask you just like person, like, Point of uh, personal privilege. What do you think of Hoosiers? Hoosiers. I bet Gene Hackman. I, bet I would still. Yeah, yeah. I bet I would still like it if I saw it, um, because you know it would probably seem a little cliched at this point. But it's also one of those fountainhead films. I feel where it's like here's where the sports movie was somewhat defined, and you've got to give some respect for that. If a movie perfects its own genre in such a way that it leads to this onslaught decades of other movies like it so it's been a long time since i've seen it though you know there's this um serial drama on amazon goliath i think billy uh bob thornton uh played the the main character and he's like this lawyer who's like you know binge alcoholic and he founded this big firm and they turned against him and he winds up like taking up this case just for money and sleeps with his client and then the firm kills her and he's looking at her body and he says, and then David took the smooth stone and slayed Goliath. And then he says, you realize like later in, in the, he says something like, that's the only religious thing I know. And then later he makes his daughter watch Hoosiers. <laughs> and you realize that's the what? only you Yeah. You realize the only reason he said that over his client's dead body was because of that film. But I, as wow. I read your book, I was thinking about that Serial drama on Amazon. I mean, that's your book, though. Like, they, hmm. you're, everybody is praying, yeah, whether yeah. they know it and not. And my teacher, Jeff Stout at Princeton, said, you know, there are, he's an atheist, but he said, the way I look at your tradition, you would call me an unwitting witness. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're witting and unwitting witnesses. Yeah, 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 sure. I like that. So if I came to Chicago, which I think I might do this summer, would you go to a movie with me? Yeah, for sure. All right, we could pick you something. You want to go? You want to go like on a Friday morning? That's when I see most. Oh yeah, these days. daytime, daytime. <laughs> lots of popcorn. I need lots of popcorn and a huge Coke Zero. Uh, okay, you can have that. I, I'm not a popcorn guy because I eat it all the time because I'm in the theater so often. But the other thing is, we'll have the place pretty much to ourselves. I find we could spread on Friday out. mornings. Yeah, so we can have some have a little room. We Sounds could podcast good. from the theater. Let's do it. Josh, thank you so much for talking with me. And this is a great book. Everybody should get it. Movies, Our Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longing. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Scott. It was good to talk. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, 
please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Josh's book, Movies Are Prayers. It's well worth the read. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.